Well, our sermon today is Walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5. I hope you'll turn there uh, in your Bible and, um, and join me in, in looking at the Scripture uh, together. Uh, as you're turning there, I would just uh, recount that recently I was able to watch for the very first time the 1963 classic film, The Great Escape. And for those of you who um, maybe aren't familiar with that movie, it loosely follows the story of World War II POWs who broke out of their detention camp in Nazi Germany. The captured officers at Camp Stalag Luft III, uh, I'm not even going to try the German, uh, (laughs) planned an audacious attempt uh, to, to free 250 men in one night. 250 men in one night. It's a great story. It has an all-star cast with uh, all these great uh, guys, James Garner and Richard Attenborough and uh, Charles Bronson, and of course, Steve McQueen. McQueen's character was the fictional Captain Virgil Hiltz, an American pilot who committed so many escape attempts that he was constantly being placed in solitary confinement, affectionately known by the Germans as the Kula. And so ever um, the, um, the independent, Hiltz initially didn't want anything to do with this complicated scheme to break 250 men out uh, in one night. It was just too high risk. But the organizers of the escape needed Hiltz. In order to move such a large number of POWs out of the area, they needed intelligence about the camp's surroundings. They needed to know about roads and, and hedgerows and railways and rivers. And so they asked Hiltz to do the unthinkable, to break out of the camp using his own devices and to survey the land and the towns immediately surrounding the camp and then to allow himself to be recaptured to deliberately get caught and be recaptured and returned to the camp in order to return the needed information back to the organizers of this great escape. And I remember being just arrested in my attention with this moment where McQueen escapes, Hilt escapes, and I imagined the weight of that decision. To be a POW behind enemy lines And to stand on the other side of the barbed wire, on the other side of the armed sentries, and to experience the tingling sensation of the real possibility of freedom, and to be able to give it all up, to be able to return then to the camp. Hiltz, of course, comes through, wouldn't be much of a movie if he didn't. Hiltz comes through, of course, and after a brief stay in the Kula, He's able to deliver the information back to the men as they need. It's hard to imagine a situation in which one who's been set free from something like prison would willingly return to bondage. That's exactly what we have in Galatians 5. This accusation that's made by Paul uh, toward the Galatians is that they've been set free and now willingly they are returning to uh, a new bondage. Christ set them free from their bondage to sin, but they now were on the verge of placing themselves under a new slavery, a new yoke, a bondage to the law. Well, if you've been a student of the Bible for any length of time, you're probably well aware that Paul wrote to these churches in Galatia to correct this dangerous heresy. 
The Judaizers were a group that had crept in and begun to insist that Christians continue to uphold the rules and the occasions of the Jewish law. And you've probably heard of Paul's impassioned pleas to reject this this errant teaching. In the first chapter, he calls this teaching another gospel. In the second chapter, he explains that this very issue is the reason that he opposed Peter to his face. In the third chapter, we hear the famous exclamation, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Followed by an appeal to the biblical theme of justification, the righteous shall live by faith which we find in Habakkuk 2 and Romans 1 and here in Galatians and Hebrews 10. And then in chapter 4, Paul explains that believers are no longer slaves, but sons. And if they're sons, then they're heirs, heirs of the spiritual promise of God. And so we come to chapter 5, where Paul now says to the Galatians, stand, stand firm in your freedom in Christ. And if we were to back up, just to get the context a bit here, backing up to the first part of this chapter in verse 1, Paul says, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. That may be one of those phrases that we sort of read past or blow by really quickly. What else would freedom be for except to be free? But this is exactly the argument Paul is having to make with the Galatians. They don't remember why they've been set free. And they are jeopardizing that freedom, even as Paul writes to them. Well, why, why would anyone do that? Why, why would anyone submit themselves again? He says, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And it begs the question, we have to ask, why would we leave one bondage and then submit ourselves again to another one? Why would the Galatians do that? I think, for one thing, that's a part of the fallen human condition, Slavery, bondage, is a part of the fallen human condition. We see it as early as the Israelites telling Moses that they wanted to go back to Egypt. Do you remember? Moses, it'd be better for us to be slaves in Egypt than die here in the wilderness with you. Do you remember all the vegetables and the fish we could eat? They were forgetting the bricks, apparently. They're forgetting that that's bondage. You want to you die free or you want to live in bondage? And they're saying, we'll take the bondage. And so I think that's a part of the human condition that we, we default back to the things uh, that give us fences and rules in ways that aren't necessarily good. We see it in the present day as well when people look at Christianity and what do they see? Rules and regulations. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is freedom. But they look at Christianity and they see only rules and regulations. They don't want to do what they perceive will be giving up their freedom but what is, what is freedom to continue in sin? It's, it's bondage to sin. True, true freedom is, is never having to sin again. And so I think it's a part of the human condition to say that we oftentimes prefer bondage because we don't recognize it when we see it. In the case of the Galatians, there's a very specific problem at hand, and it's one that is um, really giving the false teaching of the Judaizers an incredible appeal. And before we land on what that is, I would just kind of remind us that we have the benefit of 2,000 plus years of New Testament history and context. We, we know that it's uh, easy to spot. We can very quickly say, listen, Jesus plus anything is false. Jesus plus anything is nothing. But imagine the plight with me of these early believers who don't have that benefit, 
Here they are in the early church. The New Testament is still coming together. The New Testament is still being written, in fact. We're, we're looking at Paul writing them a letter that would be included in the canon of the New Testament. So the New Testament is still being written. It's not together yet. And in fact, the Scripture still means the Jewish uh, law and the prophets, at least for the moment. Very quickly, that's going to change for them. But when they think of the Scripture, they're thinking of what we would call the Old Testament. And so the believers of a Jewish background are struggling to understand which parts of their formal lifestyle are still necessary to please God. And Gentile believers have just surrendered their lives to a Jewish Savior. And they want to know eagerly what they need to learn and what they need to do to honor and live for him. So the problem that's at hand for these early churches, and by the way, this wasn't, wasn't limited to the churches in Galatia, but Galatia is an early occurrence of this. And so Paul is addressing it as, as soon as he learns of it. The problem at hand for all these early churches is this, what rules do we follow? What, what should our lives look like? How do we live in this new freedom? If we're set free from sin, how do we make choices? How do we live without the fear of dishonoring God in some way? With no rules, no boundaries, the questions remain. Would the former pagans lapse back into their old ways? Would the Jewish background believers, the converted Hebrews, participate in some new freedom that would be displeasing to the Lord? And how would they know? And so it was all too easy for the Judaizers to say, look here, we, we have an answer for that. Simply continue following the law while believing that Christ is Messiah. And maybe that doesn't even sound so sinister, even to our ears today, but Paul rightly recognized this teaching as a false hope, a false gospel, and he charges into battle. Why? Well, let me just ask this, what's the right response to the gospel? What's the right response to the Is it not faith and repentance? Well, what is, what is faith? If faith is trust in Christ alone for salvation, we would have to ask, then what are all the added rules for? What are all the regulations and ceremonies going to be? How can anyone trust that Christ alone is enough and yet need something else? It doesn't add up. And so continuing this line of reasoning, if you follow down uh, again in sort of our um, Uh, our introductory material, our background material here. Look at verse 13, chapter 5, 13. Paul says here, you were called to freedom. You were called to freedom. In other words, freedom is God's plan for you. There is purpose in the freedom that he's bestowed on you. What is that purpose? Well, it's there in the second half of that verse. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh the flesh, but Christ has set you free from sin for this purpose, not to indulge the appetites, but for something greater. He says, through love, serve one another. Our freedom is so that through love we can serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if you use your newfound freedom to serve one another, you'll be fulfilling the law in that service. And so freedom in Christ is for glorifying God and for edifying the body. That's why God has set us free. What is the purpose that he has set us free from sin for and left us here to do? It's to glorify God and to edify, to build up the body of Christ. So Paul's commanding the Galatians, you must stand in your freedom. Don't trade it away. 
Stand in your freedom. Don't trade your slavery to sin for slavery to the law. You were called to be free. The price was paid for you to be free. Don't put on a new yoke. Don't put on a new type of slavery. So how are the believers in the early church to govern their lives and their behavior if they could no longer rely on subjugation to the law? That's what the message today is really about. Paul says to his brothers and sisters, there's a new way. There's a a better way than the way we all knew before. And that new way is to walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. We're familiar with this terminology, our walk as our way of life. And I would just say that's not, that's not just church speak. <laughs> We're guilty of that sometimes. But this is a metaphor that's been in use for centuries. The Hebrews referred to a person's manner of life as their walk. Paul continues to do this in much of his own writing. You'll be familiar with phrases like walk in a manner worthy. Do not walk as the Gentiles. Walk as children of the light. Look carefully how you walk and so on and so on. And so Paul gives a wonderful answer to the concern they have about how do I govern my life? How do I make decisions that in this newfound freedom I can honor Christ? He says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. In fact, it's so strong, the Greek is doubly negative. It's a no-no in English, but it's perfectly, if you write in Greek, you can use a double negative. It'll be okay. Um, It's doubly negative, and that's emphasis. So we might translate this better, you certainly will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You certainly will not uh, gratify those desires if you walk by the Spirit. So walk by the Spirit and you can be assured that you won't be indulging in sin. How does Paul know that to be true? How does Paul know and what assurance can he give the Galatians? Well, he goes on to write with considerable effort and spending considerable time to set up the spirit and the flesh as diametrically opposed. We see that in verses 16 and following. The spirit and the flesh are diametrically opposed. What, what does that mean? Um, well, the spirit is against the flesh. The flesh is against the spirit. Diametric um, is akin to diameter. If you think of a circle that's got a, a line that represents its diameter running through it, the two points that are opposite one another on the circle are diametrically opposed. The diameter runs between them. So basically, you can't pursue one and the other. They're opposite ends of the spectrum. And if we look more closely, we see here in verse 17 that Paul is specifically talking about desires. And I want to just begin to make a distinction here as we move through the sermon today. Sometimes we're going to talk about the desires, and sometimes we're going to talk about works, and sometimes we're going to talk about fruit. There's a difference between the desire of the flesh uh, and the work of the flesh, and so I, I want us to understand that. The desires are the things that we long for. Some of them originate in our flesh. We know what they are. We're, we're very familiar with them, the fleshly desires. And rather than calling them good or bad, I would just call them natural. They, many of them just correspond with the functions of our, uh, of our flesh, thirst and hunger, for example. Um, but it's not strictly the material. It's not just our body. Uh, the Greek has a word for body. That's not what Paul uses here. He says flesh, which means more than just your body. It also includes your emotions, your will, and the corresponding desires that come from those things might be the desire or the longing for relationship, maybe longing for accomplishment, 
All of these types of appetites are desires of the natural man. But what I would say they have in common is that they're all focused on the temporal. They're all focused on temporal versus eternal things. And they are all able to be twisted and perverted into the terrible reflections of their intended purpose that we see all around us. So our hunger becomes gluttony, our thirst drunkenness, our loves become lusts because of sin. But God gives a new set of desires to believers, doesn't he? Through the Spirit. These are not at all natural, but supernatural. They're they're spiritual desires, and they focus on the eternal rather than the temporal. So when our desire is to know Christ, uh, our desire is to know God's Word, our desire is to selfishly express love and charity to others or to serve others as greater than ourselves, these are desires that don't come from the flesh. The flesh doesn't want anything to do with that. Those desires come from above. They come from the Spirit. So Paul says these desires, these passions, these appetites are opposed to one another. They, that you may not do the things that you please is the way the NASB uh, renders that phrase. That you may not do the things you wanted to do. Because there's a war going on, isn't there? The flesh still wants the things that it wants. But these greater desires, these spiritual desires are in us as well. And so this is the exact answer to the threat that the Galatians and the others in the early days are feeling. If I'm not going to live according to a set of of hard-coded rules, how will I not stumble? Paul says if you're pursuing the desires placed in you by the Holy Spirit, spiritual desires, eternal desires, desires that come from above, then you won't continue doing the desires that are from the flesh, the things that used to please you because they're diametrically opposed. In verse 18, he continues, he says, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. So you can live without the rule book. You can please God without the rituals, but you must be led by the Spirit. Well, brothers and sisters, make no mistake, Paul is not saying that this is going to be automatic. He's not saying that it's going to be easy. In fact, just the opposite is true. To be led by the Spirit is to be a person who's engaged in a war with the old self, with the flesh. The desires of the flesh are not just going to bow out gracefully and disappear. We have trouble simply breaking our old habits. This is going to be much, much more difficult and much deeper than that. To be led by the Spirit is to combat our very nature It means that every single desire or longing that comes to us is going to have to be held up, evaluated, put on a grid. Is this honoring to Christ? Is this goal eternal or temporal? Does this desire that's revealing itself in me, does it build and edify others or myself? That's a lot of work. And we're not particularly good at doing those things on the front end of our decisions. I know I can speak for myself. I tend to be reactionary. And so something happens and I react to it. And then in the, in the post matter, I'm going back and saying, was that good? Was it, was that God honoring? And it's often not as clear as we'd like it to be, is it? We'd we'd love to just have it all black and white. We'd love to have it simply do and don't. It's not often that clear. Should I have said that thing that was true, but nonetheless wounded the hearer? Should I persevere in this job or quit? 
Should I continue this relationship or walk away? And so we often have to look backward at these questions in retrospect and learn and grow as we go. So nothing about this battle is going to be magical or easy, but it is going to be freedom instead of bondage. It is going to be that. That's the difference, if you'll notice here in this this verse, between led and under. If you are led by the Spirit which is to join in this battle and follow hard after Christ and your sanctification, then you won't be under the law. Do you hear the difference in those? Led versus under. One is bondage, one is freedom. And it's so often like this in the Christian life. It, it would certainly be easier in our own reckoning if we could just take back the rule book and keep our own ledger and keep our own little tick boxes to check off so that we could feel accomplished and we could just look up and see the do's and don'ts that would, in our mind, in our reckoning, seem easier. We wouldn't have to have the worry and the hurt and the sorrow of trying to discern every individual thing or to carry the weight of the possibility of getting it wrong. But that would be bondage again. That would be bondage again, and it was for freedom that we were set free And anyway, since we could never check off all the boxes with perfect obedience, it would just be another bondage that leads to death. A second item that Paul encourages them with here is this this idea of the lists of flesh, um, the works of the flesh versus the fruit of the Spirit, verse 19 and following. So Paul goes on, he set up this dichotomy, this uh, this two-way Uh, or this one-way street, you're either pursuing uh, the one or the other. These things are diametrically opposed to each other, the flesh and the spirit. And now Paul goes on to contrast the results of living by those two different sets of desires. Remember, all Paul said so far is the desires. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit are opposed to one another to keep us from doing the things that on our own we would want to do. Now we see the working out of following those desires. Well, what happens when we pursue the desires of the flesh or the desires of the spirit? Now, it's an interesting distinction in the vocabulary that Paul uses here. Works of the flesh, fruit of the spirit. Works are the result of mechanical arrangement. A machine can stamp out works. And left to ourselves, our flesh pursues the things that it wants. Maybe the list wouldn't have been so bad if the fall had not ensured our condition. We're shot through with sin and our desires are perverted and corrupted. And under that arrangement, our flesh works or pursues the things that will satisfy its desires. And so we get the works of the flesh. But fruit is different. The interesting word, fruit is the result of a living union. That's true whether we're describing the offspring of plants which need pollination or the offspring of animals which need male and female progenitors or human beings who need both a mother and a father. And in this case, the fruit is the result of this living union, this indwelling of the Holy Spirit with the believer who is molding and fashioning a new set of desires in the believer and providing the power and the ability with which to pursue those desires. So we have the list of the works and the list of fruit. Well, what are the works of the flesh? Paul says they are manifest, 
In verse 19, they're manifest or apparent, meaning visible, observable, perhaps in a way that the desires of the flesh that we talked about previously have been harder to discern or tease out. They're less obvious, but the works are apparent. They're on display. They are showing the things that have been hiding in the heart in the desires all along. Well, what are they? Sexual immorality. The Greek here is pornea meaning any sexual pursuit or expression outside of God's definition of marriage. Impurity, which would be moral corruption or compromise. Sensuality, which might be more helpfully translated as vulgarity or shamelessness. So um, not not given over to vulgarity. Uh, Idolatry, sorcery enmity, which is hostility, strife, strife, maybe, maybe contentious. A person who loves a debate, a person who loves a good argument might be a strife lover, uh, contentious. Jealousy, fits of anger, which would be the temper um, or wrath. Rivalries, selfish ambition. Dissensions, Uh, which would be always in opposition, divisions, envy, Uh, envy is uh, ill will. Maybe you've ever heard someone, I just don't like her. I just don't like him. I just don't like that guy. Um, Ill will, drunkenness, orgies, which is also sometimes translated carousing. And then he says things like these, which we'll come back to in a minute. And I think more important than a word study of each of the terms is, is to make a couple of important observations about the whole list. At first, it isn't all-encompassing. It, it doesn't have to be. Paul adds things like these at the end. We're, we're meant to recognize the common characteristics of these words and, and then to recognize other works of the flesh in our lives uh, to root out. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to look at this list and recognize the common thread in these works and, and to see a characteristic and say, I don't like that. That, that, that. That's temporal. That's earthly. That's fleshly. That's self, self-centered. Second, the list makes no distinction between items that we might be tempted to grade or otherwise categorize, does it? A man who's got a bit of a temper, he's all right. He's not a murderer. A woman who's given to ill will or envy or jealousy, it's not a big problem, right? We may be tempted to make those kinds of distinctions, but Paul doesn't. The Word doesn't. And so, at least we'd be tempted to take those, those evidences of fleshly desire in our hearts lightly, which we sometimes do. Well, it, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working on it. Lest we be tempted to take those lightly, Paul then says this utterly devastating phrase. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom. And over the years, I've heard so many teachers try to explain away the weight of this statement and others like it. I think that's a mistake. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 comes to mind. Ephesians 5 comes to mind. We, we may have a moment to look at those um, near the end. But in all of those things, Paul describes people who will not, if they engage in these behaviors, they will not inherit the kingdom. 
And it's such a weight to bear. Are, are we to believe that people who uh, commit one of these sins is lost and, and won't go to heaven? That I would just ask, surely the Apostle Paul has not gone to the trouble of writing in three separate letters that our sins, large and small, disqualify us from inheriting the kingdom if we're not meant to tremble a bit. I think that's his whole point. We're supposed to quiver a bit when we see this behavior, not so much in others, but in ourselves. Yes, it's uncomfortable. That's the point. Don't excuse the sin and hate the messenger. <laughs> hate the sin. That's what Paul's after here. Do we, do we really take our sin as seriously as we should? I believe that's the point of Paul's statement here. We don't imagine that any of these items on this list are fit for heaven. Why would we imagine that we're fit if we're still participating in them? So, that's the point. And Paul doesn't excuse himself from this kind of wrestling. I'll, I'll I'll paraphrase Romans 7. You'll remember where he, he, he writes, I don't understand my own actions. I don't do what I want, but I do the thing that I hate. And I don't do the good that I want, but the evil that I don't want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me? The answer, of course, is Jesus. And since he's bought us at such a price, we ought to wrestle under the weight of any sin that we commit on this list or any other. We ought to wrestle. I will squirm and quiver and tremble and struggle to take every action, thought, and attitude captive until he calls me home. That's the weight of Paul's passage. That's the point. That's why he uses such strong language. It's to keep us from watering down the weight of our sins. So the Galatians are to recognize and pursue the opposite of these works. They're to, they're to look at this list of the works of the flesh and other things like them and to extrapolate from themselves things that they should not be pursuing, but instead they should be pursuing the opposite of those works, which is the fruit of the Spirit. And what is that fruit? Well, before we sing it, we'll <laughs> love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And again, rather than a word study of each term, I, I would offer some important observations about this whole list. First is that we sometimes colloquially confuse the, the fruit of the Spirit with gifts of the Spirit. I think it's important for us to maintain the distinction. We learn that the Spirit gives varied gifts to believers as He chooses, one here and another there. We may be said to have a gift mix. Not sure how biblical that, that uh, terminology is, but, but certainly a recognition of how the Spirit has equipped a particular believer to serve the body and glorify God. And the Spirit gives different gifts to different believers. But the fruit of the Spirit is different. It does not seem to be the case with the fruit of the Spirit. Secondly, the word fruit may be singular or plural in English. Right? Is, is fruit singular or plural? You don't know without the context. It could be either. But the Greek word that Paul uses here is definitely in the singular. I've seen some scholars who've made a big deal of this while others don't. But I think it helps us with this understanding that if we see the fruit as a singular item made up of multiple parts of a whole, it helps us to avoid that error of applying the, the gift mix idea when we think of spiritual gifts. We don't want to apply the that to the idea of the fruit of the Spirit. We can't be selective about 
the parts of the fruit of the Spirit. We have to pursue all of it. We have to see growth in all of them. So you don't get to look at the list and say, well, you know, I'm doing pretty good in patience, but um, I'm not very kind. That's okay. He just didn't make me very kind. No. (laughs) It's an all or nothing kind of a deal here. And so we should be progressing in all of these aspects of spiritual fruit, Christ-likeness in all of them. We should be growing in that. So there are two other contrasting lists in the New Testament that are similar in certain ways to what Paul has written here, and I, I think that they could be helpful for us to see. The context is different, certainly, but I think there are some important uh, similarities. So if you would turn with me, the first, still Paul, is Ephesians 5. If you would turn with me to Ephesians 5, keep your finger in Galatians, and turn over to Ephesians 5, the first verse and following, Ephesians 5, 1 and following, Paul says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God." Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord and take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. So there are a lot of parallel ideas here in attempting to discern between the characteristics of dark things, fleshly things, temporal, earthly desires and actions, and an appeal to discern to discern and and separate out and pursue the things that are light or spiritual or eternal, that are representative of Christ. Another list, if you would turn quickly, is 2 Peter, 2 Peter 1. So now we move from Paul to Peter, 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 5. For this very reason, Peter writes, make every effort to supplant your faith with virtue and with virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, Peter's list is not a perfect parallel to the fruit of the Spirit either, but it is parallel in the sense that there are these characteristics of Christ-likeness that every believer is to pursue. 
And the contrast portion here in Peter may not be as lengthy, the negative portion, but it's there in verse 8 and following. And just to keep comments on this section brief, I would just say we don't want to be ineffective or unfruitful, then we should pursue the increasing of these qualities. That's spiritual work. I don't think anyone imagines they're going to attain the items on this list or either of the others in the flesh. The flesh doesn't want these things. That's the whole point. And so as you grow in Christ by his grace, you continue to feed the desires that are in line with Christ's likeness. You continue to grow those. And you continue to starve the desires that are of the flesh. You don't give them any quarter. Well, let's return back to the Galatians. And remember, the temptation here is to go back to the law. Their temptation is to say, I can't do all of that. I'm not going to be good at that. I'd rather just have my checklist. Paul has contrasted at great length the diametrically opposed nature of the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, and he's urged the Galatians to stand in their freedom and to walk by the Spirit. And after seeing the lists of the works uh, of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit, and when we keep in mind that the list of the works includes things like these, we understand it's really limitless, isn't it? So these are not so much about the individual items on the list as it is the character that's being revealed by them, the character, the heart. And brothers and sisters, that's the point. The law is ill-equipped to deal with the problem. The Galatians are trying to listen to the Judaizers that, who are applying a fix that won't work. It's a Band-Aid on a surgical wound. Yes, the law can teach and train and penalize and correct, but it can only be applied to the works of the flesh. You see that? It can only be applied to the works. If you do this, then you'll have to do that. If you don't do this, then the penalty will be this. So we would need to name every possible sin. One of the reasons why the the element of the law is so long We have to name every possibility, and anything that isn't on the list doesn't get dealt with. But likewise, the law can only deal with the works of the flesh, but what causes the works of the flesh are the desires of the flesh, and the law can't address those at all. The law can do nothing to address the desires of the heart, and which is of the greater value? Which is of the greatest importance in the kingdom? So the law can force an imperfect obedience but it's an obedience that only would lead to death. Why? Because the standard is perfection. We know that. If you are guilty of one part of the law, you're guilty of the whole law. No one can keep it perfectly, but it also can't produce a changed heart. It can teach you to obey. And even if you could obey it perfectly, it couldn't change your nature. It couldn't change the character of your heart. And so that's what the Spirit needs to do. That's the Spirit's job. Where the law can only produce an imperfect obedience, the Spirit produces a changed character that leads to life. And that brings us to Paul's final instruction to the Galatians. And I'm taking a little liberty here with this final instruction. Paul's instruction to the Galatians so far to stand in their freedom and to walk by the Spirit are in imperative, and they are truly commands that he gives in the imperative. But what we have here in verse 24 is a bit more subtle. It's a qualification. It's a mark of the true believer. Crucify. Stand in your freedom. Walk by the Spirit. 
crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. He, he, he writes that those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. Who are those who belong to Christ? We would say, I know, I know, it's the believers. Yes, but Paul is, is saying it's the believers, the true believers are those who have crucified the flesh. Two items of note on this. The first is that, that strong language that Paul uses. Earlier, I talked about starving the flesh, don't giving any quarters, and starving out the desires of the flesh. Paul's not mincing. Paul starves not strong enough for Paul. Paul says, crucify it. And by the way, the word doesn't just mean kill. It literally means to drive a stake through. Nail it to a cross is Paul's appeal. Believers in Christ will have crucified the flesh. And secondly, he doesn't just say that believers have stopped their fleshly behavior. It's not, it's not just the works. The law could do that, remember, however imperfectly. But if you look closely at verse 24, what you find is that the true believers, those who belong to Christ, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Finally, we see the heart has now been dealt with. It's getting at the heart condition now. And if I could just read one final cross-reference, I think Romans 6 would be incredibly helpful for us. Romans 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And skipping down to verse 11, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Final appeal from Paul is to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. I remember a story that a former smoker told me <laughs> about accidentally finding a pack of cigarettes one day. He hadn't hidden them away or anything. He, he, he was doing well. He had not smoked a cigarette for years and years, but he was cleaning out an old area and he stumbled upon an old half-smoked pack of cigarettes. And when he did that, he didn't smile at them. He didn't smell them and reminisce about the old times. He didn't put them away for safekeeping. What he did was shamelessly run like a man crazed to the kitchen sink where he doused them all in water before throwing them away. He didn't care how silly it seemed to anyone else. He took the threat seriously and did whatever it took to make sure that he'd never be tempted to fall back into that old habit. I'm sure there are similar stories about other vices as well. When you encounter a desire from the flesh, a quiet thump in the chest that says the old heart yet still beats... How seriously do you take that indicator? Paul says, nail it. Drive a stake through it and sing praises to Jesus for your freedom while you watch it die. That's the response we're to have to the desires and the works of the flesh. So stand in your freedom. Walk by the Spirit and crucify the flesh 
with its passions and desires. Let's make some applications together as we respond today. First, I would say, for freedom Christ has set you free. For freedom Christ has set you free, I would ask, are you truly free in Christ today? Maybe as we've talked about these things, that, that freedom in Christ, freedom from sin, freedom not to be in bondage to anything anymore has appealed to you, and you recognize that you're not free. Christ can make you free indeed. If you've never responded to the offer of the gospel in faith and repentance, you can do that today. We might think that living by works or by the law would only be a temptation for the early church or maybe for these Galatian be, uh, believers that we've been learning about today. Don't make that mistake. <laughs> the application isn't that narrow. Christ plus anything is no gospel at all and we're people who are tempted constantly to add things on to Christ's sufficiency. If that's you today, I would invite you to come back to Christ alone. Christ plus nothing is everything. Thirdly, we see the command to walk by the Spirit. Do you find the Christ-like fruit of the Spirit growing within you? Is it growing? Is it increasing? Have you pursued some aspects of the fruit of the Spirit and neglected some others? That's not the holistic pursuit we're commanded to take. We can make that right today. And then finally, how seriously do you take your sin? Do you see it as a weighty threat to your Christian walk? Paul did. Maybe today would be a day that you need to go home and wage some war. Perhaps today is a day by the Lord's grace you have to drive some stakes into some things. That's a good response as well. Whatever it is the Lord is calling you to do, I would urge you to be obedient to him today. If there are needs on your heart to find an elder, a pastor, or a friend in Christ, certainly to come. I'll be at the front. Let's stand together as we're going to sing. I'm going to ask Luke to come and, and lead us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for the challenge that we've heard to stand in our freedom, to walk by the Spirit, and to crucify the flesh along with its passions and desires. Help us to be a people who are obedient to that today. We don't want to be hearers only, deceiving ourselves, but to be doers. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, would you come? Would you have your way with your church this morning? And if there are things that we need to follow in obedience to you, that we would do that in the freedom of the Spirit. And we ask that in Jesus' name.